So I think, you know, we've spoken in business and certainly in marketing and branding terms about the overlap between values and brand identity slash corporate identity and purpose and now kind of impact. And really what we're talking about when we when we say those things, certainly from a marketing perspective, is who, who do we say we are? Who, or who do we purport to be as an organization? What representation are we trying to make of ourselves and all of our constituents and our partners and our stakeholders and our supply chain and our franchisees and whatever it be? You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by NiceWork, a branding and service design company. One of the things we do best is asking our clients the right questions. This podcast came about because we wanted to share some of the best answers that we've heard over the last 12 years. We talked to significant creators, experts, and communicators who we've encountered, and we share the useful insights, inspirations, and facts that made us stop and take notes as we go about our work. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Hello, today I'm talking to Mike Stopfor, who is a self-proclaimed unemployed student, and in a previous life he was the founder and CEO of Cerebra. Mike has been a long-standing friend and client of Nice Work, and if you listen up next week, there's even a bonus episode that we recorded many years ago that you can listen to. Today we chat about many interesting things like companies' impact and what their purpose is and what they need to do in order to deliver on these two things. We chat about social media and what not to do to feed the beasts. And we have a little bit of a discussion about how marketing and business needs to think about the world around them and how they can address that. Enjoy. Thank you for coming on today, Mike. Um, I'm interested, you know, so you, if in an earlier iteration of you, I would have introduced you as the founder and CEO of Cerebra, but I think that's behind you now. How, how would you can be, how would you enjoy being interviewed, um, introduced, introduced. introduced. <laughs> well, firstly interviewed by someone who can actually talk. <laughs> and then introduced appropriately. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, super to be back uh, again, and um it's always good to connect and I think probably best described as an unemployed student right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, officially um, uh, clocked out of Cerebra for the last time in November last year and that was really sad. Um, that's a company that I love dearly and have been a part of for 13 years. Um, and But at the same time really cool because I was able to watch it kind of celebrate and and. and be really, <laughs> probably celebrate me leaving. Uh, but but um, it was really cool because I, I felt like I was um, walking away from a business that was in a really good place and doing well and thriving. And Bowel Account seems to um, still be doing really well. And I'm proud of that. Uh, but yeah, it's always very bittersweet coming to the end of a, a big chapter like that. And yeah, I decided that I wanted to do a a degree um, and I looked through a couple of courses that um, I felt would be you know, kind of worth the time and energy that it takes to do a piece of work like that and somehow stumbled across a really interesting program that has been run out of um, the London School of Economics and I signed up, well I applied straight away and had to do a lot of begging and pleading to get into the program but essentially it's um, an executive uh, degree program structured around uh, social business and entrepreneurship and that comes to 
an end in September. And hopefully if I graduate, I graduate in December. And that's been an amazing experience. And then in the meantime, have been uh, doing some consulting and speaking and working with leadership and executive teams around strategy and comms and marketing problems. And I've loved that. Um, it's been good to have the opportunity to read the label from the outside of the bottle. Yeah. So to, to quote our mutual friend, Richard Mulholland. Yeah. So, so you're studying. I mean, you say you're a student. What, what, what is this course? What is, what is the, the kind of content of it? And what, what have you learned that surprised you? Yeah, a lot. It's actually far exceeded my expectations, which I didn't expect. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting program. It's a sort of a, it's a new uh, experiment, I guess, a joint venture between the Marshall Institute, which is a research foundation that is is interested in finding ways to action, uh, you know, purposeful and impactful change in the world, but through private action. Um, and the London School of Economics. So they've come together to build this executive master's program, which they're advertising as the conscious alternative to an MBA, traditional MBA program. And the conscious alternative. Yeah. <laughs> Are they the, unconscious uh, alternatives? To no. no. <laughs> well, let, me, let me try and put it differently. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, they, they, I guess, wanted to explore what it might look like if you put social impact at the middle of an MBA program as opposed to kind of pure... Uh, scale and profit yeah. and both of those things are important and good but essentially this was an experiment to understand what it might look like if you instead of just having uh, a bunch of sort of hardcore competitive business people in a room trying to solve business problems what would it look like if you had business people with NGO representatives with uh, policy makers uh, all in the room trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems and that's been really interesting to to uh, learn from and there is that adage that if you are the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Well, I was definitely in the right room <laughs> every day. I was in a, yeah, so I learned about a lot of things that I didn't know about at all. And I also learned that I had made a lot of assumptions about the role of government in society and certainly the role of nonprofits and the effectiveness of nonprofits without really having much information to support that. Um, and that's been humbling and, and really uh, awesome to, to, I guess, be exposed to. And then I've learned a lot about um, how social impact works and is measured. I've learned a bit about behavioral economics. I've learned a little bit about leading in complexity. I've learned uh, a lot about hybrid economy theory. So what does it look like when we build organizations that are sort of a blend of traditional profit-making and traditional non-profit-making models? Um, and yeah, worked with some incredible people from all around the world and hopefully I've met friends that I will yeah, stay connected to for a very long time. I, I've loved it. The bug is bitten and I, I want to sign up for another one. Um, but yeah, lo looking forward to sharing some of those insights and learnings because in many ways it's a, it's a fairly new conversation, certainly in the world that I'm from yes. and, and not one that happens regularly around the dinner table. And so it was nice to kind of be exposed to a, a new angle on on traditional problems and traditional assumptions so i mean it, it's an interesting one because we we work a lot with our clients on on sort of purpose and impact mm. um, and we sort of stake in the house on the fact that the impact economy is going to become more and more relevant and more and more important in the next sort of 10 15 years um, what are some of the things that came out of this hybrid model of you know because when people hear ngos the obviously that 
the 80 20 thing always comes up and people just believe that it's just you know money money being spent on helping poor people but not making any massive difference in the world how how, how did your belief in that get kind of challenged then what are the some of the examples that came out when yeah Sure. So there's like, there's like a lot in there because there's first there's the question around sort of purpose and then the other one around like how did I start thinking differently about different sectors, if you like. So to me, we could have a long conversation just about the purpose one. So let's see how far we get in there. <laughs> Maybe jump onto the other one. But um, so I think, you know, we've spoken in business and certainly in marketing and branding terms about the overlap between values and brand identity slash corporate identity and purpose and now kind of impact and really what we're talking about when we when we say those things certainly from a marketing perspective is who, who do we say we are who or who do we purport to be as an organization what representation are we trying to make of ourselves and all of our constituents and our partners and our stakeholders and our supply chain and our franchisees or whatever it be you know and and often the bigger the organization the more complex it is the harder it is to do that job which yeah. you know very well right because big organizations are like complex things with many moving parts and it's it seems an easy task when you have a smaller organization with a very distinct uh, focus but very difficult when once it gets into the the but we 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 can't deny that there's enormous value in achieving significant brand equity and buy-in both from our consumers and from I guess the general public and brands like Nike and um, Gillette and uh, you know have both demonstrated the pros and cons of taking social or impactful stands and putting kind of a peg in the ground and going we you know we sell sneakers or, or or razors but also we stand for this and sometimes that's effective and other times it's not the bottom line is whether we're talking about values or brand or purpose or whatever there i think there's a misconception that it's about it's about defining a really great message and getting the look and feel right and beautiful design and beautiful execution and it's not because that's like one half of it that that is who you say you are the problem is that who we say we are is often not true yeah it's bullshit it's not it's not who we are and what i think we're failing to realize is that the gap between who we say we are and who we really are is generally the source of our pain and and like a lot of that's been realized and has come to life in the sort of social media world as people have been able to expose some of that cognitive dissonance and um, that's been really difficult, I think, for organizations to deal with, especially organizations that were very much in the traditional marketing space, right? So that's the, that's the like one part. The other part is that every organization has a purpose. And there's this assumption that purpose has to be a good thing. <laughs> it doesn't really. Like, I, I flippantly use the example of Jordan Belfort's Wolf of Wall Street. What is it called? The name of the company, Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, it's a lion. It's a uh, crap. I hope all your listeners write in admonishing us for nothing. <laughs> I want to say, angry, I want to say, thousands of angry no, comments. <laughs> I wanted to say, um, Bell Pottinger, but that's not it. But it has a sort of ring. Anyways, so that's an example of a highly efficient organization, even if it is efficient for a very short period of time, with a pur- the purpose exclusively of making money potentially at the expense of everybody outside of that. So, but it's still an explicit purpose. And 
one of the reasons it worked was because it was explicit and it was reconciled with the truth. It was yes, and they were I, all aligned around it. And nobody's apologizing. They selected that, right? team members accordingly and they 100%. all delivered a culture that, that reinforced the whole thing. And yes, they drove that's forward. still purpose. Yes. And it's still impact. It's not great. It's maybe not sustainable. It's may, But I mean, if we kind of extrapolate that a little bit, we could look at organizations like Facebook or Uber, uh, the, the unicorns that we celebrate as being you know, kind of champions of scale and growth. There, there are also explicit purposes and intents, not all of which I think we are seeing the fruits of or seeing being particularly sustainable or having kind of structural issues around them or falling short of their problem or for whatever reason. So um, your listeners will no doubt be thinking about the stated purpose of their organizations and how true that is in the experiences of customers or employees or whatever it might be. And and I think one of the one of the real challenges for leadership, specifically in today's world, is kind of being really honest about where you are at as an organization, owning that, and then being as clear as possible about whether or not that's something you want to change, if it is, how you're going to change, and then being be very deliberate about being accountable for that change, mm-hmm. and then communicating that really well all the way through. Right? Like leadership is So often there's yeah. that, we see often a real disconnect in what the leadership believes the, the truth, truth is. is what the staff believe the truth is what the clients believe the truth is and somewhere in between all of that there's the real you know like the real truth of of what's the the perception yeah. is well power power and privilege are the ultimate toxins right <laughs> they they play a really powerful role in helping us believe our own stuff right so you know, one of the one of the things I talk to marketing clients about is how we look at our own brands and have to with rose-tinted glasses, and how how hurtful it is when people complain about them and say bad stuff about our products or our people or an experience that they had. But the 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 challenge for us is to try and understand the amount of truth in that thing and kind of recalibrate our view and experience accordingly because our deluded views of the efficacy and equity of our brands doesn't serve anyone, least of all ourselves and our kind of own well-being. But that's a really difficult exercise to go through, right? So so we can't pretend that values are something that magically happen when you put them on a PowerPoint uh, slide for the first time or that purpose is only something that happens after the leaders go away for a off-site bosperat or like impact is only something that uh, is accounted for when it's on your balance sheet or on your investor report. Like these are all things that happen from the very first day that you start your business. They're inherent in your DNA. And I think the organizations that I'm starting to really appreciate for their um, growth, profitability, effectiveness, adaptability, sustainability are organizations that really understand this at a fundamental level, own it, are accountable for it, and then kind of communicate it really well. Um, One of the examples that I use is I went on a really great trip uh, with a bunch of entrepreneurs to meet with companies like Amazon and Microsoft, and um, we met also with, um, uh, early on in the year, uh, Airbnb and Uber, and just like, you name it, the, the, the coolest digital businesses of our, and happened to, on that trip, also visit with a little business called Costco, 
which is just happens to be one of the top five retailers in the US and in an Amazon market that's a hell of an achievement and Costco has got its roots in some really simple principles and like they've got this like list of five things that are critically important to them as, as an organization and that's number one pay your taxes <laughs> like that's literally their first value is like they're, they're Americans they're proud Americans they believe in the American dream and in enabling well-being and that's the first thing that's on their list number two look after your customers number three look after your staff number four uh, look after your partners and your suppliers and number five under a little dotted line look after your shareholders those are their five principles right which sounds like something that my kid would write for a yes you know like a grade eight how would you build a business project except that they actually do it and they can kind of prove that and reconcile it and and they continue to grow and they continue to do really well and costco we did a bit of an experiment as a group of entrepreneurs where we try to predict where the share prices of the businesses that we visited would be in um in a year since our visit and costco was the one that that beat out all the rest and it's just because they're following basic principles rooted to a kind of inalienable truth about value and about how to improve people's lives. And there is a way to do that without necessarily, yeah, there is a way to make money and grow and scale without having to do that at the expense of somebody's well-being. Yes. You know? And I think that's really interesting. Well, it does. I mean, I suppose it's, it's almost moving towards this idea of capitalism 2.0, you know, I think there's a lot of talk that the world should go socialist or it should go something else but a lot of the the great things that have happened in our society upliftment of people rising education lowering of death yeah. you know all this stuff has come out of a capitalist economy um and you know i, I believe that there is almost a version of capitalism like you say where people can do very well and they can make profit and they can grow massive organizations oh yeah as long as those organizations are part of an ecosystem and not just leeches that are sucking you know like sucking out profit where they find it um you know and when that resource is run out they just move on to the next pool of resource to yeah to yeah. empty that yeah and it, i mean it, i'm a I'm a classic liberal, so I identify with a lot of the views of the left, but I also, as a classic liberal, believe in minimal government interference, in free market capitalism. I believe that um, the market has a lot of the solutions to the problems that we face today. But one of the failures, I mean, we talk, you know, you mentioned capitalism 2.0. I don't have a lot of problems with capitalism 1.0. <laughs> it's that we are in capitalism 2.0. And capitalism 2.0, the one that we've created, is one of a relentless obsession with scale at the expense of the supply chain or at the expense of partners or at the expense of a resource base or at the expense of a, a whole country of people. That's, for me, that's not a really good example of the capitalist ideal, certainly as I understand its philosophical roots. And I think that we, you know, as capitalists, we have a responsibility to kind of get back to that original truth and go, well, what, what did capitalism want to achieve? And why was it working and maybe is not working as well anymore? And um, because I think we've got, we've got quite a lot of evidence to support that the, some of the alternatives are um, are in many ways and in many iterations much worse 
but maybe maybe what we're arriving at is is some sort of again kind of nuanced hybrid you know scandinavian attempt at, but again you know I, I struggle with that because that might work in a country that has you know kind of very clear uh, lines around demographics and wealth creation and so on but when you've got very complex ecosystems where things are, are you know, different. <laughs> and I, th- I would argue that South Africa is probably the most complex nation on the planet. Like, it's different. The problems are different. And it's, you know, it's not, not simple at all. Nothing no. simple. So, yeah. So, but I, I, I think we're in capitalism 2.0. And I'm interested in maybe kind of trying to learn what worked in capitalism 1.0 and whether or not we can get back to some of those fundamental principles. Because I don't think capitalism... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated question. Um, so so yeah. now you mentioned earlier that kind of brands and marketers have been very good at kind of putting these, you know, this kind of putting out this message, this purpose statement, um, and now, you know, kind of moving into this, this world where companies are being scrutinized a little bit harder and looked at a little bit harder. What role do you see the brand and the marketing team playing in helping that organization address that gap between the what you say you are and what you actually are? Like, yeah. how, where do you see that team getting involved with the company and the service or the offering or the supply chain or anything like that? Where do you see that playing out? Yeah. So, as, a, as, a, as somebody who built a business in social media would describe himself as a, a social media enthusiast, literally... I have my entire career and any personal well-being to thank uh, social media for. Like I, I relied exclusively on that trend for a very long time. Um, I this this answer might surprise you. I you know what you'll hear many people who claim to be digital and social media experts saying is that brands need to learn to be better conversationalists. They need to be more present in social media. They need to be more relevant. Uh, they need to be, and what I'm seeing from social media, and this is largely the dysfunctions of the primary platforms that kind of own that social media space, is that it's just such a fickle, superficial, soulless, <laughs> heartless space that Pay to play. I, I worry about brands um, pandering to that environment. I really think that brands that do that do themselves very few favors. Um, it, it, you, our, our knee-jerk reaction to overcompensating on service levels in social media has attracted people to that platform, the most public, most risky customer care interface that we've got. So we'll have a, we'll have a customer call center of 400 people trained to solve customer issues in an efficient and managed and private, relatively private way but we'll service people in social media with our six junior community managers quicker because we're paranoid about something going wrong in that space and attract all our angriest clients to our most public, you know, um, kind of, that's, that's inherently faulty. Like, that's a, that's a real problem. But it's also kind of universally seems to be the assumed approach. I think it comes back to what we were saying earlier on about brands knowing who they are and deciding who they are, and I'm, you know, I'm working with a client at the moment where I'm saying, like, our responses to people on social media validates their behavior. So if somebody acts in a way that we feel is 
misalign with our values, misalign with the way that we would communicate as, organi- as an organization and, and is not um, coherent with our principles, get, you know, bearing in mind that we would assume at this point in time that we've done the best to service this person, that we would have alternatives for them, that we would have communicated some of those alternatives, then there's no, there's no upside to responding. Because even some of the worst social media disasters, these things that we look at, we see it on the news because this bank posted that message or this person stole that design or whatever. Like, I've done a lot of work understanding the the material and measurable commercial impact of those things, and it's not as bad as you think it is. Mm. In fact, for some brands, it's been good for them um, because at least they've been spoken about. And then people are like, oh, yeah, I actually want some chuckles right now. I, I think that we grossly overestimate the real commercial impact of social media. I think that people's behavior largely on, on social media is completely incoherent with their real world behavior and intent. And I think that brands that pander to that are honestly wasting time and money. And I think that... I think we're going to start seeing a, a backlash with brands that say, like, sorry, we're not going to entertain that kind of behavior. In the same way that you would have a right of admission reserved on the front of your restaurant, hotel, um, you know, right of response reserved. Like, just, it, we need it. We need to be able to. are being an asshole <laughs> and we shall not engage with you. Yeah, I am, <laughs> you have not utilized the appropriate nomenclature. Uh, um, this is what does the dude say in the in the first part of the Big Lebowski? <laughs> this aggression will not come. What I can't remember. Um, so I think that's that's a big movement. I think we're going to start see brands going. We are a private institution with a set of priorities and goals and people we need to look after and things that we need to do. And if you're going to engage with us, even in this public forum, like we're only going to reward the kinds of behaviour that are aligned with what we believe is professional and responsible and credible. And right now, what we, you know, we talk about influences and the influence, none of that's influence. It's not influence at all. Most of the yelling and the noise and the, I've got 100,000 followers, it's all very superficial and very wafer thin. And like brands that are doing very well have kind of taken a stand and go, there's certain things that we're going to engage with and certain things that we're not. And we're going to equip our team to engage with the things that we believe are based in truth, highly credible, and that there is some sort of commercial impact attached to. And the rest of it, we're not going to engage in. Because again, if, if somebody says to you as a brand, you're a bunch of racist, white, and you go, no, we're not. Why are you being defensive? Why are you even entertaining that? Why are you even responding to that? Responding to that just basically put, puts a big a liter of paraffin on a tiny spark, you know? Don't feed the trolls. Well, I suppose Don't. we had that, I mean, there's that guy, what's his name? Blackland First, that party, Ooh. who gets so much media airtime. Yeah. And he got less votes than Cloudy's party. He was like a splinter party that, oh, you know, so yeah. it's like a couple of thousand votes, you know, and, and those voices I, I, have I been have amplified to, yeah. to like this epic I applaud, level. I applaud, I mean, I think that, you know, Julius Malema, to his credit, is one of the best political strategists in South Africa at the moment because he understands the power of the media. He understands how to use it. He understands how desperate the media is for 
the like for any sort of traffic attention clicks whatever it might be and and he willingly offers that up and the media laps it up and then we lap it up because you know we are willing to compromise our standards to i don't know it's like the way we behave towards the very low standard of journalism that generally we are exposed to today is it's almost like a self-mutilation kind of thing that's like like you log into twitter you log into your phone and you read this stuff and you're just devastated afterwards it's completely irrational yeah we do it to ourselves on a daily basis without going you know what like i'm feeding this beast i'm feeding the same thing that is you know kind of biting me back and we just need to be a little bit more responsible i think with our attention spans and the voices we allocate attention to and i think companies have a big role to play in this because we pander to the most frivolous and the most superficial behavior and it's just dumb it's just dumb and i'm happy to fight people on this so i'm looking forward to the arguments i like that um yeah. i mean you said something now about uh, kind of like giving people the right things your attention do you think that comes back to this kind of whole thing of purpose and impact do you think companies should be focusing specifically on things that they believe in and do you have some examples of people who you think are doing that well imagine well. we kind of turn that around imagine you know customers are saying i want to allocate my time and energy towards organizations that show credibility that show integrity and show impact in my mind we should be treating the customer the same way we want to reward the best types of customers with our best attention those customers that have paid well for i mean i i'm pretty sure you know the telco that I've contracted with for 22 years as a contract customer spent a fortune on talk time minutes and roaming data costs and whatever else sign my kids up on the account pay my wife's account like still sees me in the same way their systems probably also see me as the same, in the same way as the dude that just signed up today but the opportunity is there for us as organizations to stop being so irrationally obsessed with acquisition which is hugely expensive and rather focus on retaining our most credible most um, collaborative most impactful customers and the interesting thing is we have the data to know who those people are it's not like we can't know that it's not like we can't splice third-party data against social unstructured social data against uh, our first party data that we've gathered to try and figure out who those people are but I don't think we do that we're just so obsessed with acquisition market share stealing that customer like you know, passing yes. the same amount of people between you know the four major telcos we just basically recycle some cards between us instead of going how do we just look after our top five percent and what could that mean for our brand you know um, I, I'm interested in what those alternative strategies would produce in terms of out and out numbers, not just sentiment, like really, really hardcore deliverables. I suppose, I mean, there's, there's a few people who uh, sort of follow quite religiously, and one of them is Seth Godin, and he's just been that master of, he sticks to his own platforms that he earns, yeah. and he puts out the content that he wants to put out, yeah. and he does it consistently over long periods of time and he's one of the only people who if you google his first name in any country in the world he's the first yeah the first name that shows up but he hasn't gone and created yeah. listicles and all of the sure. little things that you do to the, the problem of, though is that it's easy to be seth godin because seth godin's one person or yes. also a smart person 
But um, when you're a big organization of 10,000 people and eight business units, and some of those business units are competitive, and some of them are profitable, and some of them are dragging the organization, and you've got kind of complexity, and you've got transformation issues to work, work through and work with, like you are, like it's hard, man. Like, and that's why I'm saying, instead of making brilliant ads and shiny billboards that are a desperate and vain attempt to paint a veneer, you know, kind of put lipstick on the pig, just, you know, just don't ask me for another copy of my ID next time I apply for finance. Just, you know... <laughs> um, Share all that paperwork with the other department that made me collect it. Yeah, I don't two know. Days like ago. There, there are such basic delivery opportunities. You know, when, when everything is commoditized and you can't compete on price and you can't compete on the service you're offering and you can't even compete on geographical positioning, all you've got left is your personality. And your personality is not what you pretend to be. It's, it's who you are. And that's how you conduct yourself in relationship, right? Like that's the, how consistently have you experienced Mike over the years versus what Mike pretends to be on Twitter, right? That those are the things you'll reconcile in your mind before you want to have coffee with Mike again. And there's just so much opportunity for us to do a better job of looking after the customers we have rather than trying to win the customers we don't have with a message that's not true about a business that can't execute. Um, we, we can do better than We know this, but it's just, it's like a, it's a race to the bottom. We're just so desperate to out market share the other guys, growth at all costs, scale at all costs. And I imagine that there's people sitting in the highest levels of those organizations going, I don't even know why we're trying to grow anymore. I don't even know what we're going towards. I don't even know what, I don't even know what good looks like anymore. I don't even know where we're going. But we just have to keep going. Just have to improve 3% on the last quarter. Just have to keep margins down. Just have to lay off more people. You know, just, just, we just have to keep going. Why? For what? So who have you seen that bucking that trend? <laughs> Not many people. Uh, <laughs> well, I suppose it's easier the smaller you are, right? Yes. So when you're agile and nimble as an organization, it's easy to do these things. When you have a massive legacy behind you, it's tougher. But um, I think there are organizations that um, are, are trying to be a little bit more deliberate in the way they think about growth and the way they think about impact and the way they think about sustainability. And there are certainly more mature models that uh, encourage organizations to think of this at all levels, whether it's financial or kind of employment or um, strategic or, or kind of waste or whatever it is. So like the B Corp movement in the States um, offers opportunities, offers organizations the opportunity to accredit themselves as, as B corporations, which is a, then an audited um, uh, certification on, a, on an annual basis where you have to go through a very stringent analysis of your organization, kind of from back to front to, but I mean, we have a version of that here in South Africa, which you, know, you might argue that black economic empowerment and certainly broad-based black economic empowerment is designed not only to transfer the ownership of capital in South Africa into a more broader demographic, but to say, how do we also make businesses more conscious of the communities that they interact in? How do we get education to be a priority at a commercial level? How do we get people to think about developing their supply chain? That's all kind of inherent in there. But because I think so many of us are resistant to that policy because we feel like it's forced upon us and it's taking away and it's you know, certain people that look and sound like you and I, I think are very resistant to that. I think 
you know, a 1% commitment to that thing over the last 25 years puts you in a very different position today in terms of impact, sustainability, your ability to win contracts, then having to suddenly realize after 25 years you've done nothing and search for a black business partner at the last minute and hope it doesn't go badly. And you know, you know the stories, right? Yes. Like, but that, that policy has offered us the opportunity on a structural level to consider impact and sustainability on a broad level. And in South Africa, that does have political implications. And I mean, I'm happy to have conversations with people who feel uncomfortable with that, but it's very difficult to deny how important that has been to us writing the ship, you know. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, there, there are organizations that are doing this very well and then there are organizations that will resist it at all costs that don't know, and now I'm not just talking about BE, I'm talking about this idea of being sustainable, whatever that means in your context. And I don't know how much longer we have on that strategy. You know, I don't know how much longer we have on the growth at all costs, scale at all costs. Yeah, and I suppose it's you, you combine that with this uh, kind of concept that people talk around like millennials and what do millennials want. And I think it's, for me, the the instead of it being a generation, I think it's a rising consciousness of people actually asking some of the yeah. questions that Couldn't businesses have yeah. avoided answering for such a long time. You yeah. know, it's like, cool, I can walk into an H&M and buy a top for 20 Rand, but how did it get into a store in Santon with a label on it, retailed and into my hands for 20 Rand? Like, yeah. Yeah. Where was the cost? Like, or, like yeah. some something somewhere paid the price for that top to actually arrive. Hundred percent. And I think like a lot of your listeners will will be thinking, I'm now going to say, yeah, and we absolutely need to be conscious of our, you know, the sustainability of our supply chain and net positive impact across all concentrics. I'm, like, I'm still a business person, mm. and I'm still going, yeah, but you know, business has the power and the influence to solve a lot of these problems quicker than most other sectors have been able to and certainly quicker than government seems to be able to but I do think that like even if we forget about like the world (laughs) the oceans and the turtles and the climate change and all of these other things that weigh very heavily and the narwhals let's not forget about the the, the unicorns of the sea yes is what I like to call them Um, even if we forget all of that even if you look at your organization just as a closed unit of shareholders, stakeholders, um, partners, customers, employees, there seems to be a burgeoning case that creating value in all of those people's lives leads to better business outcomes. Like, like even on that level, yes, we can make a case that sustainable thinking is not a bad idea, right? That that maybe exploiting employees at all costs is not going to have long-term fruits. Right? I mean, even the most <laughs> um, command and conquer, industrial-aged, you know, mogul is going to go. Yeah, no, okay, I can see the case for that. Yes. You know? um, you, you start to broaden those circles, and you can understand that. If you take a systemic view of things, if you look at business as being a cog in a system, you, you can't not acknowledge how, how you do impact those other parts of the equation. And the challenge, I think, is, is for leaders to embrace some of that nuance and some of that 
systemic thinking and some of the kind of complexity that goes with that because it is exhausting and it reply it requires a degree of mental yoga and and whatever. But like I I, I enjoy that because I think it the, engaging in that prepares you for capabilities in so many more contexts than just this one. I think it builds the kind of leadership that the world desperately needs right mm-hmm. now and that's that's a huge advantage even on a purely commercial basis. And I, I feel like I've been privileged and advantage just going through this program in that I can walk into pretty much any context right now and go like I get I get how this is complex and I, and I get the moving parts and I can engage with that and I can try and derive value from that and I can put that into some sort of strategic framework that will help people make money. And that's that's got to be an advantage. Um, I mean, I love what you're saying sort of around like impacts. You know, the obvious obvious cases for impacts are the, the companies that are saving the ocean. And, you know, the, so the, hmm. the output of the company has got a very clear and, and like succinct impact on the world, making it better. But I think what you're talking about is how are you treating your staff? You know, are you are you making them better human beings? Are you are they coming into your organization, leaving two years, five years, ten years later, in a significantly Slightly better, better place yeah. than they were? Are you considering their families and their communities and the places that they work and how how you have a role to play in in I mean, that? Even even on a very personal level, on a micro level, in terms of impact, does me, does for you know the, the cult of entrepreneurship, does Mike being in this position or Ross being in this position translate to me being happier and mm. more fulfilled? And is this having a positive impact on my life? Those are important questions, you know. And then I can draw another circle around my family and go, how about them? This mm. is you know, and and that's never going to be as simple as it's all good or all bad, because there's always going to be good and bad. But on average, you know, is is my life, this situation, these people, this place, this community, is it better for me having been here and done this, or is it worse? And I, like, I'm pretty confident that most people, barring full-blown narcissists, can, can look at that and go, not 100% sure I can answer that with confidence in that one circle. Yes. Like, and that's what we do. If there's a circle that we can't answer that confidently and we justify it by going, but yeah, but I created 3,000 jobs. So the fact that that rainforest doesn't exist anymore is kind of like, you know, which is, again, it, I mean, maybe it's justified and maybe it's cool, but maybe, you know, maybe we need to be more conscious of that. And then we need to go, why did I create this? Was that because of scale? Or was that because I was able to create more value? Or was it because I needed to get from being a $700 million person to being an official billionaire? (laughs) What what was the driver? What was the motivation? Why did I have to, why did I have to get there? And again, all of these things are really easy to talk about when you come from a position of privilege and like, it's a lot easier to talk about that when you don't feel pressure to just arrive and make money every day. And I'm re- aware of that. But yeah, I think there are important questions for us to ask because I think this is where the world is going. And I think this is the rising tide of discontent with the status quo is embodied in a lot of yes. these And does it not also sort of lead to, if you, if you think like this and you even engage, what it does is it, it builds a little bit of trust at every every place you kind of 
interacting at, be it internally, you know, with your clients, with your supply chain, whatever it is, you get a little bit of trust. And then when things go wrong, which they inevitably will do at some point, you, you have a little bit of a buffer for people to forgive you and have a little bit of leeway for people to sort of let you let you get away with it. Whereas I think, you know, kind of looping it all the way back around to sort of pandering to the kind of noise on social media, there's no forgiveness. There's no, like, if you put a toe out of line, you're called on it. And when you fix it all, nobody, everyone's moved on to the next scandal. They, they can't be bothered to acknowledge the fact that you've actually changed it. Yeah. And I guess if you were speaking to the large majority of customers that you really cared about and that really cared about you, who probably wouldn't be complaining about you on social media in the first place anyways, you would get that kind of response. People would go, you know, I get that you're actually human beings and I know that stuff goes wrong sometimes, but also we've had 12 years of... Amazing service. Yeah. like in, or at least attempted amazing service. Or whatever service. it might be, yeah. yeah. But, um, and those, that happens. It's just That's not what social media rewards. Social media rewards the lunatic fringe. It, it rewards... <laughs> our very worst behaviors and showcases them as normality. It says this is who we are, like this is what we what we believe. And it literally takes the worst of humanity and puts it up as a this is this is this is representative of all of us. And that's not the case at all. The vast majority of us are just trying to get it get along. Just trying to make a life, just trying to make sense of the world. Um, and unfortunately, we, we're using that as the reflection of our humanity, and it's, it's, a, it's a very poor reflection. Okay, I mean, we're almost out of time, so I guess I'd like to just close out by asking you the question, you know, so you've, you've now, you know, you're sort of midway, midway almost, almost all the way through your studies. Um, you know, what are, the, what are the changes you think brands and marketers should be thinking about if they want to start kind of if, if this is sparked thought and they're like this you know i like this thinking what do you think like where do you think they should be like heading or thinking you're directing their thinking to to start this journey through this complex and and layered thing yeah so i think i mean i think a lot of organizations have been forced to think about this anyways just because of the uh, competitive pressure and kind of on a macro level economic pressure and I think that it's becoming harder and harder to differentiate even through the most creative of communications unless you are really willing to poke the bear <laughs> and have a go and, and then you better be sure that you can you know you can back it up yeah um, but I do think that there is an opportunity for marketers to focus on uh, on retaining rather than acquiring the, the very best customers they have, using data to understand audiences better and to understand who the people are that, that provide and, and deliver the most value in terms of credible, um, influential, integrity-based you know, clientele, and to figure out ways to speak to those people you know, really intentionally, maybe even intimately, and to understand more what, what they need to hear and, and what value they need to get out of the brand. And then I think, you know, more and more we're going to see people, I think, questioning the validity of some of the, the, the gold rush of 
what is perceived to be more targeted marketing at the moment, you know, using using um, highly targeted social media advertising or influencer marketing or whatever it might be, questioning the validity of, of that spend and, and the impact of, of that advertising and and the impact of that on their customers' well-being. Because I think we're understanding that there's been a price that's been paid for that and um, you kind of don't get the good without the bad and, and thinking about how we, we are a little bit more responsible. So I think very interested to see Apple taking a big stance on privacy, which I think is again pivoted people back into favor with them because I think they lost a little bit of ground mm. over the last couple of years and Apple's going, we, we will be the company that will protect you. And people are going, that's amazing. Somebody's going to protect us and you know, kind of redirects the conversation and, and the way that we feel about that brand. Um, but yeah, I think, I think those are some of the things to think about. I, I, it's not easy being a marketer right now. It's not easy being able to, and it should be a lot easier to demonstrate significant return on investment but it's crowded out there man and if it's so crowded then i you know i think we should be rather rather do less better and do it with less people more effectively and allow for spillover and kind of trickle down effects of of that but look after the people that matter the most to your organization and because that's really where influence is that that's influence not what we not People on Instagram with a hundred thousand likes—that's um, not influence. That's awareness, reach. Yeah. Don't so how many followers sense. do you have on Instagram? I have a—I have a ton. I have like at least seventy-nine okay. followers on Instagram. Yeah. So you've gone for the like less, less, less is but hard yeah, quality. Very focused, very focused <laughs> approach. <laughs> well, Mike, that that was amazing. Thank you so much. For, for sharing with us. Dude, always um, good to be here. Thank um, you, man. I would like to say that if, if you don't graduate with at least the distinction, we can use our influence to, to bombard the university with negative reviews Sentiment on, on social, social media, media. On Yelp. On Yelp. Yelp to to kind of shut them down. Um, in in protest, the hilarious part is being a very liberal university. They probably will respond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh no! So yeah, let, let's not do that. But I, I can confidently say that I have very little chance of passing that distinction. <laughs> so yeah, happiness equals expectation minus reality. Something quick, we're good on that one. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you wanting to support my academic <laughs> endeavors. Cool, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And I'll catch you in the next one. Thank you for listening. We believe sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who would benefit from useful insights to stay relevant in the world of creativity, brand innovation, technology, and interacting in this new world, please share this podcast with them. On top of that, we welcome feedback, good or bad. So if you've got some, please reach out to us. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork, a branding and service design company in Johannesburg, South Africa. If you would like to chat about the challenges you're facing, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. We release an episode every week, so please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're really old school, hit us up and we'll make you a mixtape. 